Welcome to Madison Labor Radio. Labor Radio is dedicated to bringing news, information, and cultural events focused on working people and the labor movement to the Madison area and surrounding communities. I'm Jason Pash, a member of Madison Teachers Incorporated. Your support in any amount helps make Labor Radio and all the great programming on WORT possible. And I'm Carol Weidel, a member of the American Civil Liberties Union. This week, we share updates on organizing at Amazon, Starbucks, and Colectivo, learn about an event celebrating the life and work of Joe Hill, discuss labor endorsements for the upcoming election, check in on contract negotiations at CUNA, and share the COVID report and much more. If you like what you hear, please consider becoming a sustainer, a sustaining supporter of WART and, and Labor Radio. Working people are on the march at Amazon, Starbucks, and Colectivo. Labor Radio has the stories. With an inspiring 57% favorable vote, workers at the Amazon warehouse in Staten Island, New York, selected the Amazon Labor Union as their union. They overcame Amazon's steadfast resistance and showed that Amazon workers want a say in their conditions of work. Their victory is the first breakthrough in Amazon's heretofore successful efforts at union avoidance. The company paid roughly $4.3 million to anti-union consultants in 2020, according to documents filed with the Department of Labor Thursday night, showcasing the importance of the Staten Island election and others like it. Meanwhile, in Bessemer, Alabama, as of broadcast time, the vote is too close to call. There are over 400 contested votes, enough to change the outcome of the election in favor of the union. The closeness of the vote represents a victory as the union was overwhelmingly defeated last year. This story was written by Frank Emsbach. For Labor Radio, I'm Scott McCullough. Here in Madison, Starbucks workers are on the move. Greg Jabowski reports. The Starbucks union organizing drive has come to Madison. On Tuesday morning, workers at the Starbucks coffee location at 1 East Main Street, right in the middle of Capitol Square, petitioned the National Labor Relations Board for a union representation election after what has been called an overwhelming majority of signatures at the store from hourly workers there. They are asking for representation from the SEIU-affiliated Workers United. Kevin Gunlock, president of the South Central Federation of Labor, promises the full support of his AFL-CIO federation in this key national union drive. We here at the South Central Federation of Labor, we're excited about the newly organized Starbucks workers. We're going to stand proudly with these workers in solidarity, these courageous workers. They have voted yes to be in a union. The unions and our allies of the South Central Federation of Labor and the Wisconsin AFL-CIO we will stand with these Starbucks workers throughout the process. They're going to be fighting for economic justice and a fair contract. That We ask people to show up in support of these brave workers. We hope that our listeners spread the word and they show up with us to stand next to them. Matthew Beatty, a shift supervisor at the Capitol Square Starbucks and an organizer of the drive, on Wednesday described to WORT News some of the issues that convinced workers that they needed a union. We've been having these frustrations with watching the company's profits grow more and more and our pay has continued to lag, just not keeping up with inflation and things. We've got a lot of students here at our store and a lot of us, we struggle to pay rent that is increasing more and more in downtown Madison. There's been also a lot of frustration throughout the pandemic with how policies have been handled and how little say we've had in the shifting policies of things that go on in the store. 
The company's response, or non-response, to COVID-19 was a concern, Beattie explains. Most people would, they'd wear them, but then a lot of times people would fight us on it. And then that's kind of when policy started to shift. The company was like, we know, we know you guys want to be safe and wear your mask and have the customers, but we're not going to allow you to enforce it. I think there was a lot of discontent in the store due to that. And then, you know, as the pandemic went on, especially in the last few months here, we went through this period where it was almost like the pandemic existed only for people working at the store, but the customers were free to pretend like nothing was happening. Workers were ready to sign up, says BD. All we had to do was approach them and be like, hey, you know, we're forming this union. Do you want to be involved? And they're like, absolutely. And super involved, especially among the shift team. You know, we're all just all for it. There's a lot of support in the store. There was Matthew Beattie, a Starbucks worker at the Main Street store in Capitol Square and an organizer of the union drive there. The full interview with Beattie by Nate Wegehout of WORT News was aired on the 6 o'clock news on Wednesday and is available on the WRT website at wrtfm.org. For Labor Radio, I'm Greg Jabosky. Colectivo workers are also, also scored a major victory. Carol Wido has the story. A week ago, the National Labor Relations Board issued a final decision that the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 494, was properly elected as a certified bargaining representative for Collectivo's employees. Speaking to the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, Local 494 business manager Dean Warsh said, The bold and brave workers of Collectivo Coffee really have something to celebrate after the wonderful news out of Washington, D.C. The board ruled after Collectivo's workers in January asked the NLRB to review the results of the vote by workers to unionize. The 106 to 99 vote in favor of forming a union was announced in August. The initial count of votes in February ended in a 99-99 tie. The board opened some challenged ballots for the final tally. Reporting for Labor Radio, this is Carol Weidel. Local 39 and CUNA Mutual exchanged contract negotiations Thursday, March 31st. The existing contract expired at midnight. Labor Radio's Frank Emspack got this update from Joe Erica Evica, Chief Steward at OPEIU at, UN- at CUNA. Joe, what is the situation this week? As of this week, we are currently waiting on our company's counterproposal, uh, which we should hopefully be receiving about Thursday of this week. We're hoping that they move significantly, particularly on economic issues, because they really haven't shown much movement yet in regards to a lot of the main priorities that our membership has identified uh, at the bargaining table. What is the attitude of the membership? Frankly, I think our members are getting very frustrated. We just recently did a town hall where we had uh, 150 members uh, show up in order to discuss the company's latest counterproposal uh, with us, and they haven't shown movement, significant movement on wages. They haven't shown any movement on the need to have job security language added to our contract. Uh, they're still proposing eliminating our most important health care plan, the HMO that is provided, and, and so they're frustrated, very frustrated. What are the next steps? Uh, Our next steps are to uh, continue to convey to the the company uh, that our members are not willing to accept a contract like this. Uh, We did a a basic straw poll of our members, and it found that a a very large supermajority would, for instance, uh, reject this proposal if it went in front of the membership in the, the town hall that we did. So we hope to continue to convey that to the company. 
uh, particularly when they're making record profits and inflation is very high. We actually need something that's uh, going to significantly increase the kinds of wages and benefits that we receive, particularly when the company knows that they need this as well, uh, because they they really do need to increase wages and benefits to attract and retain new employees uh, to CUNA Mutual Group for the future. Is there anything else you would like to add? I would just say stay tuned as we continue through the bargaining process. We really may need some more community support um, as things continue. And so I appreciate the fact that uh, we're able to sh- share what's going on and and learn from other union members uh, and unions across Madison and, and other places from Labor Radio. So thank you. Even though the contract expires on March 31st, OPEIU began preparing for this contract last July. Workers organized weekly luncheon discussions and developed an effective internal communication plan which reaches the 450 members of the CUNA unit. Over the past few months, members have developed their bargaining positions and researched the company. Individual union members began to show their support by placing the OPEIU logo on their computers and participating in other forms of solidarity. Labor Radio will keep you informed as to the situation at CUNA. I am Frank Emsbach from Madison Labor Radio. Elections are coming. Greg Jabowski reports on labor endorsements for the upcoming school board and county board. This Tuesday, April 5th, is Election Day, and the South Central Federation of Labor, or SCUFFLE, has made endorsements for local, municipal, and county races across Dane County and the entire South Central region. Kevin Gunlock, president of SCUFFLE, describes the endorsement process. So the process is pretty simple. It's democratic. The unions send delegates to our candidate interviews. They ask questions of the candidates. And then uh, they decide who they're going to endorse. And it's the workers who show up and make those endorsements. Gunlock describes the kind of questions candidates received from union members. type of questions that workers asked were, you know, do you support our public schools? Do you support workers, including teachers, to have a voice in the workplace? And this happened with the other races that were county and municipal, too. And then also questions that were about do you support allowing our teachers to teach our children when it comes to racism and history of slavery and so forth. They were really good questions from our teachers and from our other union members. This year, Gunlock noticed some new trends. There are more contested races outside of the Madison area, notably school board races, and Gunlock senses a pattern to this. Some of these people that answered the questions were really great and they were worker friendly and socially conscious and understood the issues. And then there were others who you could tell they had an agenda. They were riled up for whatever reasons and they answered some of these questions really poorly. What we realize is that there is a concerted effort and funding from the right to take over some of these school boards and they're using divisive tactics to do so. So it's really important to to support these candidates who are going to be able to work with our unions or work with these workers and teachers so that people can do their jobs. Of the many contested races where Scuffle has weighed in with endorsements, Gunlock was concerned about the Dane County Board of Commissioners District 20 race in an area surrounding the town of Marshall in the northeast part of the county. There are still volunteer opportunities available before the election, Gunlock notes. 
We have virtual phone banking going on for people who'd like to stay at home or call from their office or call from a coffee shop or whatever. We also have in-person phone banking at the Labor Temple. We want to make sure people are vaccinated. And then we also have some canvassing going on that'll be door knocking and letting people know who our endorsed candidates are and why we endorse them. That was Scuffle President Kevin Gunlock. Gunlock also says that union members and supporters should be sure to check online for other local union and labor endorsements. A full list of Scuffle endorsements and election volunteer opportunities are available online at the Scuffle website at scfl.org or on the back page of the current Scuffle Union Labor News. Again, Election Day is this Tuesday, April 5th. For Labor Radio, I'm Greg Jabosky. Minneapolis teachers and education support professionals reached an agreement with the school district of Minneapolis. Janine Ramsey has the story. Minneapolis teachers and educational support professionals reached an agreement in the wee hours of the morning on Saturday, March 25th, ending a three-week strike, the first by Minneapolis teachers in more than 50 years. The strike was waged to get a living income for educational support professionals, structures to create and retain educators of color, an increase in mental health support in every school, a limit on class size written into the contract, and competitive compensation for licensed staff. Minneapolis Teacher Federation members ratified the agreement on Sunday, March 27. Staff returned to school on Monday, and students were back in the classroom on Tuesday, March 29, just prior to an April 4th spring break. The win for educational support professionals was big, with salary increases going up by 2 to $4 per hour, better job security, and more available hours. Mental health support for students has been increased. MTF Teachers President Greta Callahan told reporters that the new agreement includes double the number of nurses and counselors in elementary schools, as well as a social worker in every building. Class size limits will now be written into the contract. Teachers and educational support professionals stuck together and stayed on message, advocating for the safe and stable schools that all students deserve. This is Janine Ramsey reporting for Labor Radio. The Poor People's Campaign is mobilizing for a national demonstration in Washington, D.C. in June. Madison is one step in the national mobilization. Greg Jabowski reports. What do we want? Living wages! Last Monday, March 28th, hundreds marched around and through Madison's Capitol Square as part of the national organizing effort of the Poor People's Campaign. The Poor People's Campaign is holding marches and rallies throughout the country in preparation for its June 18th National March on the nation's capital. Mike Lessenden, Secretary of AFT Wisconsin and retired member of AFT Local 243 at Madison Area Technical College, was there on the march and in the crowd. Lessenden explains the ties between organized labor and movements like the Poor People's Campaign. The labor movement is dedicated to fair wages, to protecting workers, and really to protecting all people. And so it's not just about a fair wage, it's about decent health care, it's about access to health care for everybody. And, and I believe strongly in equality and justice, and I think the labor movement is working toward that end.
After the march, the crowd held a mass meeting at the First United Methodist Church on Wisconsin Avenue. Speakers included National Poor People's Campaign co-chair the Reverend Dr. Liz Theo Harris, Indigenous faith leader Mark Denny of the Wisconsin Poor People's Campaign, and many other faith leaders and activists. Among the speakers was Audrey Taylor of the Wisconsin Poor People's Campaign and an activist with the labor-affiliated Fight for 15, heard here. Being in the Fight for 15 has brought me awareness about a lot of things. In the Fight for 15, it stands for something. People who are working, we are the ones who do the work and make the money. Not the CEOs. They sit back, they wait for us to bring the money in. We are the people who's in the forefront, the cashiers, the crew people. We are here for people who work in the nursing home, security guards, anyone that's trying to be out there to make a paycheck. Things need to change. Oscar Sanchez of the Illinois Poor People's Campaign is an activist with Southeast Environmental Task Force and Stop General Iron. He spoke at the rally and then later with Labor Radio. Sanchez describes a recent victory in his Chicago neighborhood against a corporate polluter that was trying to locate there. The victory we had here in, uh, in Chicago, specifically with the southeast side, it had to deal with fighting racism. Polluters coming from the north side, from a rich uh, white community that's being gentrified and being invested in with over $1.6 billion. And our community was given another scrapyard, another polluter from the north side. This will be the third account of this coming to the southeast side. And we can't stand for that. Our community is poor, our community is black and brown people, and we deserve better. And the victory shows that when the people fight, the people win. But it just shows how much can be accomplished when you come together. That was Oscar Sanchez of the Southeast Environmental Task Force, Stop General Iron, and the Illinois Poor People's Campaign, speaking to Labor Radio after Monday's march and rally in Madison. The national call for moral revival will culminate this year with a moral march on Washington into the polls as people from across the country converge on Washington, D.C. on June 18, 2022. For more information, go to poorpeoplescampaign.org. For Labor Radio, I'm Greg Jabosky. And now for our statistic of the week on taxes, presented by Frank Ampsack. Spring is income tax season. Each spring, the Economic Policy Institute details how taxes, federal, state, and local, impact you and our society in general. Today, we will focus on the federal income tax. On April 15th, you pay federal income tax on wages, tips, commissions, and investment income. Most of us can take itemized deductions, such as reducing the overall income on which taxes are paid. The income tax is what is called a progressive tax. In other words, the more you earn, the more you pay. However, the degree of progressivity has been decreasing over the years. According to the Economic Policy Institute, decades of corporate tax cuts and increases in payroll taxes, which are less progressive, have weakened the equalizing effect of the federal tax system. Meanwhile, the proportion of the federal government's income from individuals has been increasing, while the proportion of corporate taxes has been decreasing. When we compare the rates of taxation, we find that for many of our listeners, the average rate of federal taxation is about 16.3%. However, the, for corporations, their average rate is about 6.3%. Many studies have revealed that the largest corporations in the United States have found ways to avoid paying taxes almost completely. Overall, the rate of taxations for most citizens in the U.S. is less than what people in other advanced countries pay. The other half of the equation, of course, is spending. That discussion is for another week.
And now here is Carol, Carol Weidel with this week's COVID update. On January 28th, Public Health Madison and Dane County first detected BA2, a subvariant of Omicron BA1. As of March 24th, testing detected a total of 163 cases of BA2 in the entire state of Wisconsin. Public Health continues to learn more about this subvariant, but reinfection with BA2 after being infected with BA1 appears to be rare based on recent research. While BA2 is more transmissible than BA1, the difference in transmissibility appears to be small. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention determines the community levels by looking at the number of hospital beds being used and the total number of new COVID-19 cases in an area. Based on local data, Dane County's level is considered low. The CDC's recommendation for people living in low areas of transmission includes staying up to date on COVID vaccines and getting tested if you have symptoms of COVID. The website vaccines.gov is the easiest way to find a vaccine or booster near you. Each site has different hours and the user must choose the vaccine. It is recommended that unvaccinated people choose either the Pfizer or Moderna vaccines. Again, the website is vaccines.gov. This is Carol Weidel reporting for Labor Radio. Learn about Joe Hill, a wobbly and more performing and more at performing his life on April 7th. Mike Bernhard has the details. On April 7th at 7.30 p.m., the Dark Horse Bar, located in the Constellation Building at 756 East Washington Avenue, will host for Matt's last theater group's production of Joe Hill in song and presentation. Tom Castle, sea captain, singer, musician, folklorist, will provide music and verse, followed by a discussion and a question and answer period led by Frank Emsbach, labor educator and organizer. I'm with David Simmons, director of Fermat's Last Theater. Why don't you tell our listeners a little about your theater, David? Last three years, we've done something called documentary theater, a theater about the real people and real events. And the first work of that genre that we did was the story of the House Un-American Activities Committee and its first target uh, in the 1930s, which was the Federal Theater Project. What do you think is the... 2022 importance uh, of understanding what Joe Hill did and who he was and and why what he did was important. Well, I think there are great parallels between Joe's period. Uh, he came to the U.S. in 1902 and was executed in uh, 1915. It was a period of explosive growth, especially in the West, and uh, the economy was dominated by a few large corporations or trusts the Southern Pacific Railroad, Anaconda Copper, Carnegie Steel, which would become U.S. Steel. Um, And these corporations employed tens of thousands of workers who were struggling to unionize. It's not that different today with Amazon and Starbucks and Collectivo and Walmart, you know, tens of thousands of low-paid workers who are struggling to unionize. And so I think the parallels are quite obvious. In Joe's day, the war between capital and labor was very much a shooting war, and scores of uh, workers and their families were killed. Today, perhaps the corporations use uh, lawyers and, and PR firms instead of bullets. I guess that's progress, but uh, the parallels are certainly there. On a political theater, all of our work has some political or social justice aspect to it. 
Um, and we're also a, a free theater. We don't charge admission to any of our works. Do you have anything else you'd like to add? Uh, well, my own background is in labor. I was a member and officer of UE Local 1105 at a Westinghouse factory in Chicago for many, for many years. Um, I was the lead organizer with the Chicago Area Committee on Occupational Safety and Health in the 70s and 80s. That was Mike Bernhard for Labor Radio. See you at Joe Hill on April 7th. Chevron workers in California. On April 7th. Chevron workers in California are on strike. Sean Hagerup has the story. Employees at a Chevron refinery in California are on the fifth day of a strike against their company in what they say is a fight for better compensation and work schedules. About 500 workers, represented by the United Steelworkers Local 5 and located in the city of Richmond in the San Francisco Bay Area, went on strike Monday. A day before the strike, the company replaced those employees with non-union laborers. In a news release posted Sunday, USW said its members have been on the job without a contract since February 1st, and that on February 25th, the union had reached an agreement with the oil industry on wages and working conditions. But each of USW's 200 units bargain locally before a contract is ratified, the release noted. Quote, it's disappointing that Chevron would walk away from the table instead of bargaining in good faith with its dedicated workforce, end quote. Mike Smith, chair of the USW's National Oil Bargaining Program, said in the release, quote, USW members continue to report for work throughout the pandemic so our nation could meet its energy needs, he said. Quote, they deserve a fair contract that reflects their sacrifice. Reuters reported that Local 5, citing the higher cost of living in the Bay Area, asked for an additional 5% pay hike over the 12% increase reached in the national agreement. Reuters said Local 5 also asked Chevron to increase staffing so its workers wouldn't have to work 60 hours or more a week. USW announced yesterday that contract negotiations with the company would resume early next week. I'm Sean Hagerup, reporting for Madison Labor Radio. Labor activists are presenting an are presenting an online meeting over Zoom to discuss alternative to, to policing. All are invited to join on Thursday, April 14th from 3 to 4.30 p.m. Central Time. For this webinar, the Labor Research and Action Network will host union activists from the United Electrical Workers in North Carolina, the University of Michigan Graduate Employees Union, to compare how different union organizing efforts around the country and navigate internal conflicts over alternatives to policing. For more information, contact the Labor Research and and Action Network at lrnetwork.org. Thanks for listening to Madison Labor Radio. I'm Jason Pash. Thanks to editors Frank Imspach and Ellen Laluzern, assistant Robin G, reporters Greg Jabowski, Sean Hagerup, Scott McCullough, Janine Ramsey, and damage control specialist Joanne Powers. Thank, thank you as well to the website editor, J.J. Meyer. Special thanks to Keith Steffen, our reader coordinator, and to all our readers and the members of IBEW Local 2304 WORT Staff Collective. And I'm Carol Weidel. We we wish to thank all our generous contributors to WORT and Labor Radio. Please stay tuned for the Blues Cruise with David Watts.